<clears throat> so one time God told me, you're doing it wrong. I said, doing what? He said, being led by the Spirit. You're doing it wrong. And I said, how so? He said, well, you're trying to discern exactly what is my will each moment and do that. I said, what's wrong with that? He said, it gets you locked up in introspection and slavish legalism to every impression that you think might be me. Nobody relates to that? Was that God? Was that not? Was that me? Was that God? Oh, no, I missed it. Oh, I didn't do it. Oh, I should have done it. Well, it probably wasn't God that time, but that was definitely God. No, I didn't do it. Then I said, all right, then how am I supposed to be led by your spirit? And I'll tell you what he said at the end of the sermon. It's good to see you, Carl. Been a couple weeks. How come them backlights aren't on? I can't see Carl good enough. You'll notice I'm very picky about lights. I don't know why. Anyway, here's the verse of the day. And whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And whatever you do in word or deed, well, that about covers it, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, hey, it's good to see you, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, he could have said, no matter what you do, whether in word or deed, you are in Jesus, because that's true. But that's not what he says. He says, now that you are in Jesus, no matter what you do, remember it and take every moment to intentionally live it as an act of worship. Well, that's an interesting idea. There's no distance, no separation ever. The veil's been torn. The Spirit's been poured out. We don't have to go somewhere to get God. He's here now. We don't have to get prayed up to get the presence. We can get prayed up to feel the presence, but we don't have to get prayed up to have the presence. Who knows what I'm talking about? We can get prayed up to get in touch with God on our end, but he's already in touch on his end. Remember when they come down, where Jesus is coming down the mountain and some people meet him and they go, your disciples tried to heal my kid and they couldn't do it. And he says, oh, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. And yet he wasn't fasting and he got the thing right out of the boy right away. So apparently the fasting wasn't for the father They weren't fasting to beg the Father, were they? And they weren't fasting because that would budge the demon. They were fasting, or they should fast, or we should fast, to change what we see. It's about us getting in touch with what's already present and available. Okay. So Paul says everything is worship. Every action, every movement, every step, every cup of coffee, every word... Every moment is worship. 
in a different book, Romans chapter 12, different book, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Not what you offer in this place, but what you offer in this place. Not necessarily what you offer Sunday mornings, though that matters, but what you offer to the Lord all week long is your real worship, right? Live in such a way that he believes you when you sing. That's your real worship. And then he says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. So our entire bodily life in the world our entire bodily life in the world is now meant for worship. Which raises a question about the world, doesn't it? Raises a question about the nature of the world. You could take Romans 12, 2, which says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. You could take that and go, oh, the world's evil. The world is defiled. The world is off limits. The world is a threat. The world is profane. It's not sacred, right? Well, yes and no. We'll get there. Some Christians have been so... Hey, Gabe, hush up. Some Christians have been so focused on the darkness. I apologize for the dis disruption that I just made. <laughs> Some Christians have been so focused on the darkness that they actually hoped to die to escape the world. In other words, they thought that the way to get free was death, which would make death their savior, not Jesus. You can nod. They're gonna be real frustrated when he raises them from the dead and puts them back in the world, because that's where we're headed. Oh, what am I doing back in this meat sack again? What I made you for and what I redeemed you for, dummy. <laughs> so some Christians hope to die to escape the world. And that's not, that's not a very Christian worldview. It's actually a very non-Christian worldview. It's a very Greek worldview. It is not a Jewish worldview. And also along with that kind of thinking comes a certain kind of view of what counts as spiritual, right? So people who think this way, they think that devotion to Jesus means avoiding life's pleasures and instead doing painful spiritual things. You know, monkey, not monkey, monkey, like ee -oo, ee -oo, up in a tree, monk and nun type of things. You know, pastor things. Ew. Missionary things. Ew. Things that hurt and cower. Things that apologize to God for being born. Colossians 3.17 does not fit very well with this mindset. Because Colossians 3.17 isn't calling us away from the secular stuff in order to worship Jesus, is it? Colossians 3.17 is calling us into the secular stuff 
as worship for Jesus. You with me? In fact, Colossians 3.17 doesn't have any space in its vision left for anything secular. Everything becomes sacred. In our culture, our, the way I think our culture would talk is the distinction would be between the, the religious and the secular. But I, I personally, I, I, I can't find any secular world. My conviction is that everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus and everything holds together in Jesus. So there's not one inch of space left over that doesn't already belong to him. I looked around, I couldn't find any secular space yet. I looked around, I couldn't find any people who weren't made in the image of God and loved by God and worth the blood of Jesus. I, I just haven't seen it. Haven't found one. No matter where I look, I see everything pulsing with the electrical current of God's beauty, God's presence. So I think it's a true statement, isn't it, to say biblically that the world is good. It's a true statement. But it's also true that mm, the world is a dark place full of sin and death. So biblically, the world is also bad in terms at least of the current ruling spiritual system. But think, think about, think, just walk with me a minute. Is there anything good about demons? Do demons have intelligence? Is intelligence good? Do they have will? Can they exercise choice? Is choice good? Is self-awareness good? Is existence good? How about memory? Communication? Being a spirit, is that good? Every single thing I just said is good. The only thing that makes them evil is the misuse of their good gifts. In fact, evil doesn't exist in the same category as goodness. Goodness is real. Evil is just something good that's been bent. In other words, goodness hits to the essential nature of a thing, and evil has to do with the perversion of something's use. Which is why the church has always told the story we have told about how humans got the way we are, how the, how the angels and demons got to be the way they are, and how the world got to be the way it is. We have always said that the creation was good and turned and went wrong. We call it the fall. And the gospel is the true story of how God instead of giving up on the world, sees the goodness that's still here and considers it worth restoring. That's the gospel. It's the true story of how God, through Jesus, is setting the world right. God's like a shepherd who lost a sheep and searched until he found it. God's like a father 
who lost a son and he was presumed dead, and one day he shows up. Tattered and marred and messed up and changed, but alive and returned. We got to celebrate, says God. We got to celebrate. That's God's view of the world. That is God's view of the world. It might not be some of our view of the world, but that's God's view of the world. It's a, it's a place that's worth dying for, worth saving, worth restoring. It's always more work to restore something than to just make a new one. You know, they just burned Charles and Edith's house. They just, it was just easier to burn it. They didn't burn it. The firemen burned it as an exercise. It's just easier. Scrap it. Start over fresh. And God says, mm, no. I'm going to do the meticulous, careful, detailed work of preserving and restoring. Okay. Some Christians believe that's true of the souls of a small, major, you know, a small minority of the human race, but the rest of the world's going on the scrap heap. I believe every inch of soil, every blade of grass, every horseshoe crab and sandpiper that's playing in the waves is destined to be radiant with the glory of God. There's an Orthodox priest named Alexander Schmemann, and yeah, it's a weird name. He wrote a little book on the communion, right? The bread and the cup. He wrote a little book on it called For the Life of the World, in which he had like, I don't know, one page that I've never forgotten after I read it. He said that when we eat the bread and the, and the cup, we don't, we don't eat it as regular bread. We eat it as the body of Christ. And when we drink the cup, we don't drink the cup as regular juice or wine. We drink it as the blood of Christ. So in that sacred meal, we change our vision and we believe that these regular material elements can convey the glory and presence of Christ. You believe that? And he said, Holy Communion is a window into the true nature of the entire material universe. Through the window of Holy Communion, we see that all meals are sacred. And if that bread and cup can be the body and blood, then surely Kate and Pete can be the body and blood all week long. And if that bread and cup can be, can host the presence of God as their true destiny, as their highest intention, if that was God's intention all along, then surely the whole earth can be full of his glory. It's a window into the true nature of reality. Are you with me? So there was really no, I don't know if you noticed this. Whoop, there it is. Caught my little pants there again. We could just put little hooks on the corners of the thing and, and have more entertainment. Just... Let me ask you a question. In the Garden of Eden, was there a temple? Yes. 
So, no temple in the garden. And yet in Jesus' day, they went up to the temple to pray. They had to pray through the mediation of the sacrifices at the specified times, and they had to go through the right channels to get to go up to pray. But in the, in the garden, no temple. Let me ask you another question. In Revelation 22, when there's a new heaven and new earth and God dwells with his people, is there any temple there? So let me ask you this question. Where's the temple now? Because eternal life has already started now. We're back in Genesis 2, friends. The reality that will rule in Revelation 22 has already begun in you, if you're in Christ. Unbroken, ceaseless, eternal communion. When N.T. Wright visited, he's a British pastor, British bishop, when he visited my seminary in Kentucky, he said that the whole creation is made to convey and contain God's presence, God's glory, like a violin is made for a bow to make music. And the whole creation is made to carry and convey God's presence, God's glory, like a wine glass is designed to carry wine to your mouth. We need to gain a proper vision of this universe, of this world in which we live, and of the activities of your daily life as you work and play in this world. As you wake, work, eat, sleep, rest, play, cry, all the things that happen. We need a vision of the glory of God filling the earth as it already does. You know what's missing? The knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The glory is there. Those who have eyes to recognize it are what's missing. Okay. So in the Old Testament, God called his people apart to not learn the ways of the, of the world, and by which I mean the systems of the world, but to live in the world as his representatives. They were to be a kingdom of priests. A priest mediates between the people and God so that the people are connected with God. And Israel, among the nations, was meant to connect the other nations to God. So to be a priest is to be a missionary. Are you with me? To be a priest is to be a missionary. And Peter applies that to the whole church and says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his light. What does that mean? That as he calls us out of the darkness of the world system, he sets us in his presence, in close relationship with him, that in the world we might shine the light of his goodness and love. We see the world the way God sees the world, or we're supposed to. We're called into the world, not into little, little communities where we hide from the world, 
Don't be infected by the world, our little Christian clubs and Christian schools and Christian stuff. Years ago, I remember I made up a parable about us sending missionaries to India. And then they gave an annual report. And we said, how's it going? Have you learned the language? Are you working local jobs? Are you embedded in the community yet? Are, you kids, are your kids in their schools? Are you in with them? Are you learning to speak their language and their culture? Are you learning to become Indian? Are you crossing that gap so that they can see an Indian Jesus? And they said, well, you know, we've had a trouble learning the language, so we figured they speak good enough English. Okay. What have you been doing then? Well, we found that there were other missionaries living in our city, so we've been doing a lot of men's Bible studies with the men and women's coffee groups with the women and little prayer groups. We're hoping that maybe if we just pray enough, somebody will magically drop into our meetings, that if we'll pray, maybe they'll come to us. So let me get this straight. You're cloistered in your own little thing, and you think it's their job to cross the gap and come to you? Well, yeah. We figured if we just preach, it's their job to come. We go by another year, annual report. Have you, have you been in people's homes? Have you invited them into your home? Have you shared meals? Have you walked with them? Have you carried them through their griefs? Life's going to happen to people. Have you been just friendly enough that when the crisis happens, they lean on you for support and you can give them the kingdom? Well, I don't know about all that, but I'll tell you what, we have just grown really close with some of the other families that we have met there who have Jesus in common. It's been Really good times. All right, your funding is cut. You aren't a missionary. Find support from somebody who's dumb because we ain't doing it. That's not what it's supposed to be. That's failing at the mission. Okay, so how many of you are listening to that parable saying, that's the church in the United States? Good, I'm glad you were thinking that. We're bad at mission, friends. Because we think the world's dirty and going to infect us. We hide in our Christian stuff instead of fulfill our calling to be priests, worship, and mission. There's this wonderful movie by M. Night Shyamalan called, let's pretend I pronounced that correctly, called The Village. Bless you, bunny. And I watched The Village and I realized that it was a parable. I can't hardly talk about it without spoiling it, but it's an old enough movie that I guess, I guess that's okay. In this movie, the, the movie explores the question of how do we, how do we get away from the brokenness in the world? It, it, it's a group of people, and they see the materialism of modern society, the technological dehumanizing power of it, that we've been reduced to a nine-digit number and, a, and, and the ability. We're consumers, right? We're cogs in a wheel. We're, we're, we're raw material in a system designed to make money. And they, they want to buck this. They want to escape the corruption in the world. So they leave society behind, and they form a new society. And... And they go back in time to a time before technological advances, before the internet, before tablets and phones, before industrialization, before the raping and pillaging of planet Earth and the destruction of the natural order of things. They go back to sustainable ways of life. They create a world made by hand where every single person is known by name, has a function within the community and matters. And, it ex and the experiment royally fails. 
the experiment royally fails because they wrongly diagnosed the problem. They thought the problem was out there in the world, not in here. They thought the line between good and evil was between us and them, not running right through every human with a daily choice to be had. Are you with me? I believe when we get to heaven, we will find people there whom we thought were out. And we'll find some people out that we thought were in. See, it's what's in here that matters. It's what's in here. This text says, no matter what we do, we're supposed to do it all in Jesus' name. And I wonder how many of us finish our prayers with that expression, in Jesus' name, amen, and think that because we said that phrase, we've done the verse. We've prayed in Jesus' name. I just said so. In Jesus' name, amen. And by the way, amen doesn't mean I'm done. It means yes, indeed. And in Jesus' name is not just the thing that makes it legal. You remember the story of the seven Jewish exorcists that hear that Paul is casting out demons by the authority of Jesus, and they go, hey, I'm going to try that. So they go up into the house and, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, punch, kick, bludgeon, rip, cat meow, thump, thump, toaster throw, and all seven of them come out naked and bleeding. Not not a good day. They did it in Jesus' name. Well, no, they said the words. <laughs> the demon says, Paul, I've heard of. Jesus, I know. Who the heck are you? And they said, uh-oh. You know, like when my little sister would be chasing me with a booger on her finger when I was a kid. Yeah, and I'm running around the whole house because she's small, but she's got a booger, and I don't want that on me. So I'm running, and finally, I, my patience gets weary, and I'm, I've had enough. And I get angry, and I let out one of my little Tim growls, like when I bash my head on the cabinet. And I turn around, and she looks at me and says, uh-oh. And then I'm chasing her. That's that moment. In Jesus' name, whom Paul preaches. Uh oh. So it's what's in here that matters, isn't it? You can have him on your lips, but if he's not in your heart, you don't have his power, do you? You got to know him. You got to walk with him. The centurion had an insight. Remember the centurion that says, Lord, don't even trouble yourself. Don't even trouble yourself. You don't even have to come. Just give the word and my servant will be healed because I am a man who is under authority. Therefore, those under my authority, when I say come, they come. When I say go, they go. Why? Because I'm under authority, my authority over them is legitimate. And you are that way too, Jesus. Because you are 100% submitted to the Father, you carry the authority of the Father. You want a secret? A secret way to gain spiritual power? 
Nobody? Okay. If you'll seek and find Jesus in secret when nobody's watching, and you'll treat with reverence, with importance, the things he reveals to you, if you'll hold them so precious that you arrange your life to, to honor the things he says to you in private, he'll put power on you in public. If you'll honor and acknowledge him in secret, the demons will be forced to honor you in public. I've always had this theory. Reverence for God in secret brings the power of God in public. But back to this thing of in Jesus' name. Uh, if a federal agent shows up at your door and says, I'm Jeff and I have a gun, open the door. Uh, he's going to jail. <laughs> He's doing it in his own name. He's not doing it in, with the backing of the federal government at all. What does he say? Or she? What do they say? FBI, I have a warrant. Open the door. They're not there in their own name, in their own authority. When we live in Jesus' name, it has multiple meanings. It means we're living as his representatives who carry his delegated authority. It also means we are living, remember when he says, even if you give a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in my name, you won't lose your reward. And when he says, when you, when you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it unto me. So doing it in his name means doing it unto him as though it were to him himself, right? So it carries multiple meanings. We do it as his representatives. This is a fascinating thing. As we do it unto him, he backs us up with power. As we do it unto him, it's actually him doing it in the world. Fascinating. Okay, shall we finish the sermon? So anyway, God told me, you're doing it wrong. I said, doing what? He said, being led by the Spirit. I said, how so? He said, you're trying to discern my precise, exact guidance based on your impressions and so forth, and then do that. I said, what's wrong with that? And he said, ah, it gets you all locked up in introspection and charismatic legalism. It's not good. I said, okay, well, how am I supposed to be doing it? And he said, offer whatever you happen to be doing to me with the intention that I receive it as love. Love. 